On this episode, I'm going to read an article I wrote and published in October 2020 called Ethical Fashion, How Singular Narratives of Worker Management Relations Fail Us. As many of you might know, I used to work as a garment factory manager in Cambodia. I worked for two different companies while I was there, and during my first day on the job for the second company, I dealt with an illegal strike. The incident shook me to my core, and whenever I'm having tough days at work now, I think back to that day, which comparably makes my current life feel pretty cushy. Although yes, of course, my life back then was cushy too, but it was also intense in a way that my life now is not. The reason the incident shook me to my core was because going into the job of garment factory manager, I saw myself as the good guy. A commitment to social justice was the reason I'd become a factory manager in the first place. But I quickly realized that I was in moral quicksand. If I managed to convince people that I was indeed a good employer, then what should they make of the disgruntled workers? That they didn't know it was good for them? That wasn't the sort of patronizing position I wanted to implicitly claim either. This article is my exploration of that contradiction and my reflection on how formative and also limiting the good guy, bad guy narrative was to my understanding of worker management relations in the garment sector. As a former garment factory manager, it's my conviction that stories about management worker relations desperately need some diversifying. Often, this relationship is talked about in terms of a singular narrative, exploited workers and exploitative management. But this narrative doesn't help us to understand a multidimensional and highly contextual relationship. Most likely, it isn't in the best interest of workers either. If we're serious about making the fashion industry more just, we must stop relying on a one-size-fits-all explanation for why manager-worker relations can become contentious. Relying on a singular narrative might help us make sense of a messy and disorderly world, but it also makes it nearly impossible to notice the alternative, more complex, and less binary narratives that not only coexist, but also leave more room for possibility. The Limits of a Singular Narrative When I began as a factory manager, the righteous worker versus bad factory manager narrative was critical to the way I approached my job. It was the reason I focused on trying to earn my staff's trust. I had open office hours. I sought staff input before making decisions. I tried to be thoughtful about how my decisions were communicated. I allowed time for questions. Whether I was or wasn't an effective manager is certainly up for debate. I don't offer these anecdotes to assuage my conscience or persuade you one way or the other. I offer them because they are critical to demonstrating how implicitly my approach to the job, to building a relationship with my team, revolved around positioning myself in opposition to the stereotype of the malicious factory manager. In other words, I assumed that the only reason for rebellious production staff was oppressive factory management trying to take advantage of workers. If there was no evil factory manager, there would be no rebellious workers either. If only my team could see that I wasn't the enemy, then they would stop treating me as such. But clearly, I was missing something. As time passed, my relationship with my production staff remained spotty at best. There were times that they would surprise me with a birthday fruit platter. There were times when they posted smiling selfies of us together all over social media. There were times when they lobbied hard for things that puzzled me, 
a sound system for Khmer New Year festivities, an extra hour of celebrations. And then there were times when they would strike illegally. I had an illegal strike on my very first day as general manager of the Pactix Phnom Penh factory. The production supervisor was given a number of verbal warnings in the months prior because he and the quality control supervisor were routinely found on the production floor screaming at one another. This wasn't the example of conflict resolution I wanted them to set. In the months prior, when I'd been interim general manager, the three of us met weekly. We tried to explore the root cause of the disagreements. We made new procedures. We agreed new rules. But the production supervisor continued to resort to screaming. Finding him in a closet during working hours receiving coining treatment from another colleague didn't help matters. Upon demanding to know what was going on, his straightforward response baffled me. He was hungover from his son's birthday party and needed the massage to be able to do his job. Didn't I want him to be able to do his job? Per our company policy and the Cambodian labor law, a series of progressively more consequential steps must be taken before terminating someone, except in cases of gross misconduct. It was time to issue an official warning notice. But the employee in question refused to accept the written warning. He threatened to contact his friends at the Ministry of Labor. He threatened that his people on the production floor wouldn't cooperate if I went ahead. I suspended him immediately, and he refused to leave the building, and he had to be escorted out by security. According to the Cambodian labor law, this constituted gross misconduct, making threats, using abusive language, inciting others to commit serious offenses. Immediately, and without discussion, most of his team refused to work. They demanded that their manager be reinstated. It's a complicated case. The workers in question were not unionized, and the employee in question was a manager. But generally, in order for a strike to be considered lawful, all other methods of dispute resolution must have failed, like negotiation, conciliation, and arbitration. My intuitive response to the situation was to try and reason with the people on his team. I didn't want to escalate the situation. I told them that they didn't have to agree with the decision and that I was open to hearing their perspectives if they were prepared to accept that ultimately the decision to terminate their manager wasn't theirs to make and that disagreement over his termination wasn't a valid reason to stop working. I was happy to schedule meetings in small groups to discuss and hear their feedback. I was sure they would come around once they understood how outrageously inappropriate their manager's behavior had been but my appeals got me nowhere. In the end, I had to issue a formal letter stating explicitly that people would not be paid for the time not worked. Further, we would review their cases for formal disciplinary action. Immediately, his team went back to work. But in the week that followed, the production supervisor continued to hang around in the parking lot, stirring up support for his cause. I feared for my own safety, as well as for the safety of some of the other management staff involved. Calling the police isn't really an option in Cambodia, where connections and money reign supreme. And yet, I felt a responsibility to somehow ensure my staff were safe. I leveraged some loose personal connections to senior government officials, who arrived at the factory with their bodyguards and government license plates for a tour. I was playing by the rules of the system I found myself part of, and it put an end to the incident. 
Over the years that followed, I had many positive interactions with my staff, but I also continued to deal with many cases of egregious misconduct. Workers not showing up to work for weeks without notice and then contesting the termination for payout. Workers showing up intoxicated outside the factory, yelling profanities. The list could go on, but the point is, it was a pattern, not an isolated event. Meanwhile, union leaders and junior government officials repeatedly made it clear to me that a little kickback money could make it all go away. These incidents shook me to my core. I was the quote-unquote good guy. A commitment to social justice was the reason I'd become a factory manager in the first place. I thought I could do it better. My knee-jerk reaction was to defend myself. I exclaimed to anyone willing to listen that my workers were unreasonable, illogical, acting against their own self-interest. I rattled off the benefits Pactix provides its workers. I pulled up photos of our working environment. I blamed Cambodia's education system. I accepted that people unfamiliar with the Cambodian context would not be able to understand. I accepted that my former self, the student of human rights, would be disappointed in me. I accepted that in the real world, people are forced to establish extremely personal hierarchies of ethical choices and that they're not easy. I resented people who judged without ever having had to make those choices themselves. And in my lowest moments, I questioned my own judgment. Maybe I was an evil factory manager. Was the workplace I managed not actually a nice place to work? Maybe I had lost my moral compass and could no longer trust my own judgment. Initially, this was the only explanation I could come up with, given how formative the exploited worker, exploitative manager narrative was to my understanding of the world. But I quickly realized that I was in moral quicksand. If I managed to convince people that Pactix was indeed a good employer, then what should they make of the disgruntled workers? That they didn't know what was good for them? That wasn't the sort of patronizing position I wanted to implicitly claim either. Never mind that convincing people of my positioning as quote-unquote good guy inevitably relied on the social capital that comes with my race, gender, nationality, upbringing, way of speaking English. Why should someone believe me when I said that Pactix was a good employer? Because I'm white? Because I'm quote-unquote Western? Because I have a master's degree in human rights? For someone to decide that we share a common set of values and that they're willing to give me the benefit of the doubt would have required me to appeal to all of these things. And yet, the fact remained that I was thoroughly confused by my staff's behavior. Gradually, I realized that the binary I found myself stuck inside of was my own creation. I was clinging to a narrative that was not only familiar to me, but profoundly shaped my understanding of the world. The exploited worker, exploitative factory manager narrative was the only framework I had for understanding worker management relations, for making sense of my own experiences. Gradually, I also realized that the good worker, bad manager narrative is enabled by another very historically and geographically particular idea. The notion that a job, gainful employment, is the most effective shield for protecting against an otherwise precarious human existence. In other words, I assumed that the thing that all of my employees wanted most was a stable job. In my eyes, earning their trust required making them see that I was committed to making that happen for them. In my eyes, protection against human precarity and a job were synonymous. 
but they're not. The latter is simply one tool for achieving the former. Alternative narratives. I want to pivot back to the illegal strike and my first day on the job. At the time, the decision to follow the lead of a manager whose egregious behavior, in my view, unequivocally destined him for termination, was inconceivable and short-sighted. In my world, the consequence of refusing formal feedback and threatening your manager would always be termination. But maybe what was unequivocal to me was a lot more ambiguous to my staff. For me, the manager's behavior was clearly against the rules, whether official company policy or less formal norms governing workplace behavior. And I had trust in those rules, that they were fair, that they would be upheld. Relatively, I've grown up with trust in the rule of law, in process, in procedure. But my colleagues hadn't grown up with that trust. The government in Cambodia is corrupt. Impunity is pervasive, whether it's the prosecution of the ex-Khmer Rouge currently governing the country, or the nuisance of a neighbor who decides to start a rooftop chicken farm with over 50 chickens in the middle of the city. Are there rules in place banning people from having rooftop chicken farms so close to neighbors? Probably, but it doesn't matter. What matters is my neighbor's relationship with the Sankat, with the local government. Gradually, I came to understand that in a context with so little accountability to the rules, or where the rules worked in a very different way, it might not be self-evident that such gross misconduct would lead to termination. What matters a whole lot more than the official rules, or whether they've been broken, is who has power. The most straightforward way to secure one's own interests, the best insurance policy for a rainy day, is to be protected by someone more powerful. In Cambodia, Power means money and relative proximity to the government. I was female. I just turned 30. I was foreign, with no obvious ties to Cambodian high society. I rode to work on a secondhand scooter, not in a luxury SUV. Meanwhile, the employee in question had connections to the Ministry of Labor. He'd been their manager for a few years while foreign factory managers rotated in and out. He'd promised pay increases. Maybe, relative to mine, his power was a safer bet. Maybe his team's decision to strike illegally was in fact totally logical. The reasons why people behave the way that they do often reach far beyond what's conceivable to our imaginations. Our imaginations are limited by the narratives and reference points familiar to us. The narrative of exploited worker and exploitative factory manager was so central to how I understood worker management relations that I was unequipped to make sense of a strained worker management relationship in which there was no malicious manager. This brings me to the sensitive subject of unions and current events at Pactix where workers are officially on strike for the first time. Is it possible that a garment factory worker might join a union for reasons having nothing to do with its stated ambitions or cause? Is it possible that in some cases, in some contexts, union support is derived from something outsiders might not expect or even understand? Before delving into this, it's worth noting briefly that the union scene in Cambodia is complex and politically fraught. According to a 2015 Human Rights Watch report, there are at least 63 garment trade union federations in Cambodia, of which only a handful are considered independent. That report says, and I quote, Workers and activists widely believe the rest to be pro-management and pro-government yellow unions. End quote. 
Meanwhile, others claim that these yellow unions are a tool of the opposition, not pro-government or pro-employer. For example, a 2019 article by the People's Dispatch claims that, and I quote, ever since the democratization process that began after the Paris Accords of 1993, unions have been central in mobilizing political opposition against the government, end quote. This context matters because, regardless of which side you fall on, it establishes the importance of unions and garment workers as pawns and or players in larger ploys for political support. According to a Fashion Revolution article written in 2016, and I quote, the garment industry in Cambodia moves a tremendous amount of money. Approximately 5.7 billion in clothing and shoes were exported last year, which accounts for as much as 95% of all exports from Cambodia. Out of the 15 million inhabitants from Cambodia, the garment industry employs around 500,000 people, mostly women, end quote. Prior to 2020, Pactic's workers were not unionized, though some individual members of staff did belong to unions. Like so many other manufacturers, in the aftermath of pandemic-induced order cancellations, Pactix was forced to reduce working hours and lay off staff. This was the catalyst for Pactix workers unionizing, and on its surface appears to fit neatly into typical narratives of worker-management relations. But it's worth rewinding and offering some more context. All but one of the stated points of contention were resolved prior to the strike. The outstanding issue, and the reason for the strike, was management's decision not to reinstate two terminated union leaders. Management maintained that the two employees in question had indeed committed gross misconduct, in one case extended absenteeism without notice, and in the other, sexual harassment. I want to focus on the sexual harassment case. According to the Pactic CEO, Aryan Lan, harassment was discovered as a result of security camera footage. According to Lan, the media and the union were both informed of the sexual harassment allegation, and yet both the union and the local media continue to focus exclusively on narratives of union busting. For example, an article by Central Cambodia states that, and I quote, the main point is the reinstatement, explained Kosal of CTWUF. Rat is the union president, and if the company can fire a union leader at will, then nobody will want to lead the union. It's the company trying to reduce the power of unions. Kosal added that the workers who went on strike would have been happy to negotiate with Pactics if the unionists had been able to return to work, but noted that laying off unionists has been a trend in Cambodia throughout the year. Central Cambodia has published on Pactic's strikes twice. In both articles, the language used to describe Pactic's is crucifying. When the predominant narrative is one of worker versus manager, there's very little space for talking about the multidimensionality of power. Just like the narrative of exploited worker and exploitative employer made it hard for me to understand worker rebellion in the absence of an exploitative employer, this narrative also makes it hard to make sense of uneven power dynamics across workers themselves. A survey of Cambodian unions done in 2010 indicated that despite an industry that overwhelmingly employs women, men dominate union leadership. The same study cites, and I quote, limited participation by women in union activities and leadership as the top internal problem cited by respondents of the survey, end quote. 
The exploited worker exploitative management narrative casts the worker as the victim, but this obscures how multidimensional marginalization often is. The worker isn't monolithic. The worker might also be female, part of a minority group, or both. There are layers to marginalization that the singular exploited worker exploitative manager narrative isn't equipped to cope with. The question is, how do we, as advocates of human rights in the fashion supply chain, contend with the many narratives that coexist? As advocates, is it possible to acknowledge that, especially in contexts with weak rule of law, unions might not always represent the best interests of workers? While at the same time acknowledging that these workers are particularly vulnerable to exploitation at the hands of more powerful employers and might need unions as a counterbalance. Pactix is a Dutch-owned company located in Siem Reap, a town heavily reliant on tourism and hit hard by the pandemic. Formerly bustling streets are mostly shuttered. Zoom out another layer. The political balance of power in Cambodia is precarious. For the last few years, Cambodia has been at a political crossroads. The facade of democracy has been dismantled. The opposition, as well as the free press, are gone. And it's resulted in the loss of important free trade agreements with the European Union. The Chinese government's influence over Cambodia and Southeast Asia in general is steadily growing. And now, layer on top of that, a global pandemic and the subsequent shrinking of two industries responsible for employing vast numbers of Cambodians, tourism and garment manufacturing. As I reflect on the strikes at Pactix, I can't help but wonder whether worker support for the strikes reflects the shifting landscape. The Ministry of Labor estimates that 130,000 garment workers have lost their jobs or have reduced shifts, and 256 factories have either closed or suspended operations. And this was in 2020. Maybe worker support for the strikes isn't derived from the legitimacy of what they promise to deliver. Maybe it's not indicative of a greedy employer out to take more than their fair share. Maybe for the first time, Pactic staff see unions as a safer bet for securing their future needs than their employer. Or maybe a secure job was never perceived to be the surest bet for cushioning against a precarious human existence in the first place. A case for mutual understanding. In recent months, many factory managers have privately expressed their frustration about the effects of unions on their businesses to me. Conversations around ethical fashion leave little space for hearing, or more importantly, understanding this perspective. Like me, many factory managers fear that speaking their truth will brand them anti-worker or the bad guy. But factory managers must be able to talk candidly about their encounters with workers and with unions without being demonized. As sustainability advocates, it's the things that are untouchable and off-limits that most need our scrutiny. Our ability to have these conversations is critical to more mutual understanding. And more mutual understanding is critical to ensuring that we don't inadvertently decouple the goal from the tool. Thanks for listening to Manufactured. I've been your host, Kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show, come say hi to me on LinkedIn or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com. And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more. 